Welcome to the Arlington Street Church podcast. Founded in 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the greater Boston area and beyond. We are located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets, across from the Public Garden in Boston, Massachusetts. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. What would you do if a coworker invited you into their office, sat you down in front of a rat, and asked, do you think you can control this rat with your mind? Yeah, that's basically what science reporters Alex Spiegel and Lulu Miller did at the National Public Radio headquarters. They invited their coworkers into an editing booth one at a time and sat them down in front of a lab rat and asked this question. Do you think that the thoughts that you have in your head, okay, the private thoughts in your head, could influence how this rat moves through space? No, each person said. They did not believe that their personal thoughts would have any effect on the rat at all. One person even elaborated, because that would, that would hmm, suggest that I have some sort of telepathy or telekinesis that I just don't have. I mean, really, how would each of us react? And maybe most of us would agree with the NPR test subjects that we couldn't, but we'd be incorrect. Alex and Lulu had brought that rat in as a lo-fi, unscientific version of a study that a research psychologist named Bob Rosenthal had done. He went into his lab late at night and hung signs on all of the rat cages. Some of the signs on the lab rat's cages said the rat in the cage was incredibly smart. And some said that the rat in the cage was incredibly dumb. Even though neither of these were true, they're just ordinary old lab rats you can get anywhere. So then Bob brought this group of experimenters into his lab, and he said, for the next week, some of you are going to get these incredibly smart rats, and some of you are going to get these incredibly stupid rats. And your job is to run that rat through a maze and record how well it does. We've probably all guessed where this is going. In Bob's real study, the experimenters ran the rats they were told were dumb and the rats they were told were smart. The results were dramatic. It wasn't even close. The smart rats did almost twice as well as the dumb rats. But they were all just the same average lab rat. The results were so shocking that Bob was having trouble getting his research published. What Bob figured out was that the expectations that the experimenters carried in their heads subtly changed the way that they touched the rats. And that changed the way the rats behaved. So when the experimenters thought that the rats were really smart, they felt more warmly toward them and touched the rats more gently. So that leads to the question, how does this play out when it comes to people? 
go so far as to compare us all to lab rats. I will compare us to lab rats, actually, because there's something really true here. Carol Dweck, a psychologist and researcher at Stanford, has found that the lab rat thing does apply to humans. When we have low expectations of someone, we might stand further away from them. We might not be making as much eye contact. Day to day, we might not be, away of, be aware of how we're conveying those expectations and conclusions that we have about other people, but it's there, it shows up, and it makes a difference. And it happens in all kinds of areas. Research has shown that a teacher's expectations can raise or lower a student's IQ score, that a mother's expectations influence the drinking behavior of her middle school schooler, that military trainers' expectations can make a soldier run faster or slower. What got me thinking about this were some experiences that I had at a workshop I went to in November called the Thriving Changemaker Summit. The person leading this training, psychologist and life coach Maria Nemeth, presented us with this great question. Have there been people in your life in whose presence you felt more alive? People who have made you see, feel seen and heard? People around whom you felt more ease and joy? Oh yeah, there have. And just hearing that question makes me think of my lifelong friend, Zoe. He's one of those people who's just luminous and he always seems to bring out the best in people. Do you have someone like that you can call into your mind? I would bet that we all do. And I would bet that we all would love to be that kind of person who brings out the best in others. So here's the next big question. What was Zoe looking for in other people? such that being in his presence was empowering? Or in other words, what conclusions do our luminous people have about others? We generally think that a conclusion is an opinion that we form after we've considered all the relevant facts or evidence, but Maria Nemeth suggests that it happens the other way around, as in, in the beginning was the conclusion. The mind is a conclusion manufacturing machine. Author Malcolm Gladwell asserts that people reflexively form conclusions about each other within seconds of meeting. Once that reflex is triggered, the brain looks only for evidence that will validate that conclusion. This means that our supporting evidence is determined by the triggered conclusion, not the other way around. The human brain is wired for conclusions, a reflex that might have helped us survive since prehistoric times. We have learned to assess potential danger in an instant, which was crucial when we were trying to survive a run-in with a saber-toothed tiger. So we gather evidence to support the conclusions that interest us. But of course, 
not everyone sees the situation in the same way, even with, when presented with the same objective facts. One place I know I experience this is within my own family. We all remember stories and interpret behaviors in very different ways. And my dad and I could each give compelling, detailed facts that would back up our positions. That's because we look for evidence to back up our conclusions. Imagine that you and I are working in the same office, and we're friends. One day, I come to you and I say, my boss is a jerk. You say, are you sure he's a jerk? Maybe he's just having a rough day. You know the computer system's down, and it's really stressful. Well, the next thing I'm likely to do is to give you evidence to support my jerk conclusion about my boss. It's natural, because once I'm focused on a conclusion, any conclusion, my brain is hardwired to provide evidence for why that conclusion is correct. It's a matter of survival, or so our brains think, to be correct about what it has deduced. This means that I'm not going to be interested in evidence that might contradict my assumption. If you hear me out but can still counter with something like, I hear you, Joanna, but as your friend, I still have to ask you, are you sure it's not just been a rough few days? If you asked that, you'd be very brave because you're challenging my conclusion and I might not relent without a struggle. It goes against the grain to reassess a conclusion. I am in the groove of my own evidence-gathering process. And we show up to others differently based on the evidence we're dealing with in the moment because we cannot help but act in ways that reflect the evidence that we're focused on. With that situation with my boss, how am I likely to act if I am sure that my boss is a jerk? How do I look to you as I give my supporting evidence? Is there much generosity of spirit, compassion, spaciousness? What might my facial expressions convey? Am I especially empowering or inspiring to be with at that moment? Or am I showing up as judgmental and small-minded? Now let's take the scenario one step forward. Suppose that as I'm talking with you about my boss, the man himself steps into the room. He looks at me. Presumably, I am not thrilled to see him. My boss picks up on that and walks out, or maybe he frowns before asking me to do something. This causes me to give you an I told you so, look, my original conclusion is validated, case closed. Let me be clear that I'm not discounting or excusing other people's behaviors. The boss may very well be doing what I say he's doing, and his behavior could cause some people to label him as a jerk. But could there be another way to see it? And how would we show up differently if we did. Often when people talk about folks they admire, Mother Teresa's name comes up. Mother Teresa was often noted for how she not only served the poor, 
but dignified them as well. When asked about this, she said that to her, every person she came in contact with was Jesus in all his distressing disguises. She dedicated her life to the view that it was true about everyone. Mother Teresa's extraordinary vision of people as divine teachers was her starting conclusion. If we were dedicated to seeing the divine teacher, the hero in everyone, what would our evidence look like? We might see each person as having tremendous worth and dignity, just like the first principle of Unitarian Universalism affirms. We might see that, as the text of this morning's choral anthem will remind us, in each person's heart are truths stripped of poet's gloss, a yearning to be seen, to be comforted, to be loved. How would we, who have gathered evidence that everyone was a hero, show up? Perhaps as joyous, inspired, and fiercely devoted to seeing that everyone experienced dignity, respect, and love throughout their life. And then how would others show up around us if we had those conclusions? I imagine that they would feel that all is well and would feel seen and affirmed. If we shift the focus of our attention to a conclusion that interests us, we will naturally and radiantly show up as who we want to be. Recall the my boss is a jerk scenario. There's no way around it. How I show up in the face of that evidence is small-minded and defensive with my heart closed. I want to avoid my boss not so much because of him, but because of how I feel and act when I'm around him. Juxtapose my conclusion about my boss with the conclusions that we just explored Mother Teresa as having. We might be tempted to say, all right, but it's Mother Teresa. She never had an unenlightened thought in her life. We'd be mistaken. She had very keen self-awareness. And profound self-awareness turns up more than just those happy things we're proud of. In an interview with author Wayne Teasdale, Mother Teresa related a time when she was a young woman and had a disturbing insight about herself. In addition to her generous nature, which she saw, she related that, I realized a long time ago that I had a Hitler inside me. It can be really startling to hear that. It is so much nicer to think that those I consider to be saints and wise ones never have any negative thoughts like I do. I mean, how often are we glad that other people can't read our minds because we ourselves are unhappy about the thoughts that we have? 
But when we are aware of all the different kinds of thoughts we have about people, the generous and the not so generous, and when we tell the truth to ourselves about it, we gain some breathing room. We're then able to shift the focus of our attention to the conclusions about others that interest us the most. And that interesting conclusion, that fresh perspective, can feel like such a relief, like floating or flying. Try this with me and see if you feel that relief as we try out two different sets of conclusions. I invite you to picture somebody in your mind whom you care about. You're welcome to close your eyes as you feel comfortable. And as you hear the following, imagine that person in front of you so you can get a direct experience of what we're talking about. We're going to start by seeing someone through what we're going to call the red lens. And you would be starting with the following expectations of this person. There is something wrong with this person or they are, in some way, damaged. They do not have their own answers. I do. It's up to me to give them the answers or to fix them. This person's commitment and motivation or ability are questionable. This person is a drain on me taking up my time and energy. My experience of looking through people, looking at people through this red lens is that I feel almost a physical heaviness, a burden from the grouchiness and resentment that immediately surface. And how would we be showing up if that's what we expect of people? Is there any room for possibility, creativity, collaboration, or support? Do our hearts constrict somewhat? Now take a deep breath, shake it off a little bit if you need to, and let's come back to bringing that person in front of you, and we'll try seeing them through the green lens with these expectations. This person is a hero, whole and complete. This person has goals and dreams and a desire to make a difference. This person has all their own answers. This person is contributing to me right now. This person deserves to be treated with dignity and respect. Did you feel a difference? You might notice your body relaxing and a sense that all is well. When I look through the green lens, I feel a sense of ease, relief that I don't need to analyze or fix this person. A burden has been laid down. I feel more luminous, taller. What might it be like to have conversations with someone through this lens? 
What might interactions in our families be like? What might our experiences at work be like? What might church be like? When we practice seeing people through the second perspective, through the green lens, we are opening our hearts. There is spaciousness and possibility here. It is a result of having seen directly to the heart of who people really are. It is seeing the light inside of someone and acting as if it is all that we see. And guess what? That's when the light grows brightest. Here and now, this is my wish for us. Let's lay down the burden of having to fix each other, of expecting to be drained and disappointed. Let's start from the conclusion that the person in front of us is a hero, whole and complete. That they have goals and dreams and a desire to make a difference. That they have all their own answers. Let us see that they are contributing to us right now. And that this person deserves to be treated with dignity and respect. Let us be luminous. So may it be. And amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. We would love to hear from you via email at office at ASCBoston.org or through our Facebook page. If you would like to support the good work of Arlington Street Church, please consider a contribution by checking the mail or through our website, ASCBoston.org.